Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Cultural Podcast, a podcast devoted to Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. On today's episode, we're going to review our final Femminile match of the season with Serie A survival on the line. In part two, we'll review our penultimate Primavera match of the season. And in part three, I'll talk about the latest news and speculation on Napoli's coaching situation, as well as the carousel of managers moving around in Serie A as a whole. So let's start with the Femminile, who played their final match of the season on Saturday, the 25th of May. We played against a very good team in Roma, who beat us 3-2 in our first meeting. Heading into the round, we were sitting in 10th place on 13 points, 1 point clear of the relegation zone. San Marino occupied the second relegation spot and needed a win to have any chance of staying up. A draw would not be enough because we own the tiebreaker after beating San Marino 5-0 in our second meeting. Even a win would be potentially insufficient, because if Napoli beat Roma, San Marino would still be relegated. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Roma lined up in a 4-2-3-1 with Camelia Cesar in goal, Elena Linari and Alison Swabi started at centre-back, Elisa Bertoli started at left-back, and Kaya Ertsen started at right-back. Claudia Cicciotti and Giada Greggi started in the double pivot, Lindsay Thomas started on the left wing, and Jezeb Bonfantini started on the right wing, and Paloma Lazaro started at striker. Alessandro Pistolesi made four changes to the squad that he fielded against Hellas Verona, and I have to say I was not happy with these changes at all. The first change I didn't like was starting Catalina Perez in goal over Sabrina Tasselli. Tasselli took advantage of the opportunity when Perez got hurt and has been excellent in goal. 
Perez had not started in nine matches. Her last start was against Fiorentina on February 7th. So to throw her into such a big match in the final round of the season made absolutely no sense to me. Two of the changes were forced. As I suspected, Alexandra Hewn was suspended for this match. Sofia Jensen started in her place, which was also surprising considering Jensen is a midfielder. Gomi Arnadotir picked up an injury in the Verona match. I was expecting Paola Di Marino to start in her place, but instead Pistolesi gave Chiara Grof her first start of the season. The midfield was unchanged, at least in terms of personnel. Sara Houche started in the middle with Eleonora Goldoni and Emma Eriko on the wings. The wingers swapped sides though, so Eriko moved over to the left and Goldoni played on the right. Finally, Pistolesi made one change up top and again, I didn't like this change at all. He started Evi Popadinova on the right wing over Federica Caferata. Now, I don't have anything against Popadinova, she's a very good player, but since Pistolesi started playing Caferata higher up the pitch, she's been one of our best players and has been instrumental in turning our season around, so I cannot comprehend how he would have not started her here. Jenny Hillman started on the left wing and Izota Noki started again as the false nine. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. The first half reminded me a lot of the first meeting between these clubs. Roma were clearly the better side, they pressed high and pinned us into our own half, that forced us to play the long ball and more often than not we gave the ball right back. We also committed fouls in dangerous areas and Roma nearly punished us on two separate occasions. The first was in the 18th minute, Huche committed a foul on Bonfantini at the edge of our box. That was somewhat of a difficult area to shoot from because it was so close to the edge of the area, so there wasn't much room to get the ball up and over the wall and then down again. Andresa managed to do that with a beautiful strike but her shot hit the bar and stayed out. Roma went ahead only a few minutes later though from a corner kick. Andresa played an in-swinging corner from the right side toward the near post. Eriko was defending the post and did a fairly poor job of heading it out. In fact, she didn't head the ball out at all. Instead, she flicked it onward toward the back post where no one picked up the late run of center back Linari. She casually placed her shot into the empty goal to put Roma ahead 1-0. We conceded a second free kick at the top of the box at the half hour mark, this time it was Popa Di Nova committing the foul. Linari took the free kick and hit the target but the effort was weak and Perez made the save. Perez should have been able to catch the ball but she spilled the rebound leaving the opportunity for Roma to pounce. Fortunately Perez got there just in time and was fouled on the play. Perez looked very shaky in this match, she played at least one pass straight out to touch, but for me that's more on Pistolesi than it is on Perez, you can't expect the keeper to be sharp after being out for so long. Perez nearly got caught with egg on her face 5 minutes before the break, Roma had a corner kick from the left side, Andresa played a deep outswinging cross this time, Perez came out to catch but completely misjudged the projection of the ball, she came nowhere near the ball which left a free header for Thomas in front of the goal, Thomas got a good head on the ball but fortunately Mariah Cameron was there to clear the ball off the line, Cameron was one of the few Napoli players who I thought had a really good first half. So the first half finished 1-0 for Roma, I'm sure we had staff keeping an eye on the San Marino Fiorentina game, in fact Pistolesi admitted that he would in his pre-match interview. That game was tied 0-0 at the break, like I said earlier San Marino needed a win to survive regardless of the result in this match, so we were 45 minutes away from securing a place in next season's Serie A campaign. The San Marino game had a wild start to the second half with 3 goals in 4 minutes. Fiorentina opened the scoring in the 49th minute with a goal from Luis Quinn. 
Two minutes later, Sarabaldi doubled Fiorentina's lead, but only a minute after that, Viola Brambilla pulled one back for San Marino. Despite that San Marino goal, that sequence put us in a very strong position. It meant San Marino would need to score two more goals in the second half to have any chance of surviving. If the first half stats were any indication of how that match was going, it seemed highly unlikely that San Marino would score two more goals. Fiorentina had roughly 70% possession and outshot San Marino 10-1 in the first half. Back in Napoli, a draw meant the same to us as a loss, so I wanted to see us go all out in the second half. I think Pistolesi recognized that as well. He also recognized who was not playing well and made two changes at the 50th minute. He replaced Hillman with Cafarata. I thought that made a lot of sense. Hillman has always been one of my favorite players, but she really hasn't done much in the second half of the season. He also replaced Eriko with Pia Riesdijk. Eriko is a midfielder and Riesdijk is a striker, so this was definitely an aggressive approach. Those changes would prove to be useful, but not until after Roma doubled their lead. In the 61st minute, we got caught trying to play out of the back. Janssen played the ball out to Riesdijk, who attempted to square the ball to Huche inside our own box, which was a very risky play. Andressa picked up the loose ball, carried to the byline, and then cut the ball back to Thomas at the top of the 6-yard box. She made no mistake firing into the top corner to make the score 2-0. Only three minutes later, our substitutes combined to pull one back though. The play started with a run by Cafarata on the left wing. She played a low ball into the area. Linari failed to clear the ball and Riesdijk was first to the ball. She calmly dribbled around Cesar and fired into the empty goal to make the score 2-1. I thought the second half was far more balanced than the first half. We had much more of the ball and with better movement, we were able to work the ball around to create chances. Most of the play for the middle portion of the half was in the midfield and then there was plenty of excitement in the final 10 minutes of the match. Roma came close to adding a third in the 83rd minute, but substitute Alice Corelli's shot hit the outside of the side netting. Then a few minutes later, another substitute, Ana Maria Santorini, came close, but Perez was quick off her line and made a brilliant save. Credit to Perez, she was far better in the second half than she was in the first half. Unfortunately, Sarturini was injured on the play. She had to be taken off on a stretcher with a brace around her neck. Hopefully that was for precautionary reasons. You never want to see a player get hurt. Then only a couple of minutes later, Cafrata was fouled in the area by Corelli and the penalty was given. Huche stepped up and converted the penalty, so we were all tied at two. The drama didn't end there, there was plenty of stoppage time after that Sarturini injury, and in the 5th minute of stoppage time, Roma were awarded a penalty of their own. Goldoni inadvertently blocked the Roma shot with her hand, which was in an unnatural position. Another substitute, Manuela Giuliano, stepped up to take the penalty, but Perez made an excellent save to maintain the draw. That was the final chance for either side, so this match finished 2-2. Meanwhile, Fiorentina held on to beat San Marino 2-1. In fact, the game ended before the Roma penalty, so it didn't really matter if Giuliano scored or not. So with those results, the Femminile confirmed their place in next season's Serie A campaign. That completed an unbelievable turnaround to our season, which has to be credited first and foremost to Pistolesi. When he joined the team, we had only one draw and 10 losses and seemed destined for relegation. Ironically, his first match in charge was against the same Roma side, which we lost 3-2, but the team showed a lot of resolve in that match. There were signs even then that we could turn things around, especially with Badi and San Marino performing just as poorly as we were. In his 12 matches in charge, Pistolesi managed to collect 13 points, so our girls had every reason to celebrate after the match. 
it was made even more special after we had to watch Hellas Verona celebrate their survival after the draw to us last weekend. I'm really happy for our women. With the men's team, our fans are often offended when we're called a provincial club. With the women, we really are a provinciale. If you look at the teams that are at the top of the table, Juve, Milan, Sassuolo, Fiorentina, Roma, Empoli, they all have something in common. That is that they are affiliated with their men's team. If you go to any of those clubs' websites, you will find news on the men's, women's, and Primavera teams all in one place. They also cross-promote, which brings awareness to the women's team, and surely the women get financial support from the club as well. It's no coincidence that Juve have dominated for the last four seasons. It's no coincidence that the last three seasons, Milan, Fiorentina, Roma, and Sassuolo have all been in or around the top four. We don't have that at Napoli. As far as I can tell, De Laurentiis wants nothing to do with the women's team, and that's a problem. That means our women don't get the same financial support as the top clubs do, not just in Italy, but in all of Europe. Chelsea, Manchester City, Barcelona, PSG, Lyon, Bayern Munich, and so on are all supported by their men's teams, so that's why staying up is worth celebrating. We're playing at a disadvantage, and that's unfortunate because the women's game is growing, and I think in a few years' time it will be exponentially bigger than it is now, and when De Laurentiis decides that the men's and women's teams should be affiliated, we'll be years behind the eight ball. Hopefully he'll get his head out of his ass soon, but for now let's just enjoy this performance and look forward to another season in Serie A. That will do for part 1, in part 2 we'll review our latest Primavera match. In part 2, we'll review our penultimate Primavera game of the season. There was plenty of drama with the Primavera as well. Heading into this match, we were sitting in 3rd place, which was the 2nd playoff spot in Group B, but there were 5 other teams challenging us for that playoff spot. We were tied with Entella on 32 points, Crotone and Spezia were both 3 points back of us on 29 points, Frosinone were in 7th on 28 points, and Cosenza were technically still alive on 24 points. That was because they had 3 games in hand, meaning 5 games remaining, so if they won out, and we won out, they would still finish above us. We came into this match in relatively poor form, we had picked up only 1 point from our previous 3 matches, starting with a draw to Frosinone, and then 2 losses, first to Lecce and then Crotone. 
Fortunately, we played against a very poor Salernitana team who had only 10 points on the season. They had lost their last three matches, which were against Frosinone, Pescara, and Cosenza. They had also conceded 49 goals on the season, which is 2.5 goals per game, and that is the worst in the league. So in theory, this should have been an easy match. That said, I wasn't convinced we would get the win. We were still without some key players, including Antonio Trofi, Giuseppe Ambrosino, and Vincenzo Furina. They were all absent due to injury. Davide Costanzo, Valerio Labriola, and Giuseppe D'Agostino were all questionable after training with the senior team in the morning. So with that, let's get to the starting lineups. Salernitana lined up in a 4-4-2 with Alberto Ciabattini in goal. Francesco Di Mico and Luca Piervenanzi started at center back. Mario Perone played at left back and Marco Guzzo started at right back. Alessandro Russo and Andrea Vignes lined up in the center of the midfield. Vincenzo Domarco started on the left wing and Agostino Del Regno started on the right wing. Finally, Carmine Iannone and Lorenzo Cannavale started together up top. For Napoli, Emmanuel Cascione went back to a three-man backline for this match. He lined up in a 3-4-2-1 with Hubert Dasiak in goal. Mauro Seppe made his first start of the season in the middle of the back three. Jonathan Spedalieri started on the left side of the backline and Raffaele Virgilio started on the right. Brando Sami and Ricardo Cataldi started in the center of the midfield. Flavio Romano started on the left wing and Vincenzo Potenza started on the right wing. Despite training with the senior team in the morning, Giuseppe D'Agostino still started as one of the two trequartisti alongside Antonio Vergara. Finally, U17 captain Antonio Pesce was called up again and made his first start at striker. Benedetto Barba and Valerio Labriola started on the bench alongside a number of U17 players including goalkeeper Vincenzo Provitolo, winger Pasquale Maranzino, and winger Domenico Di Donna. Finally, Davide Costanzo didn't make it into the squad after training with the senior team. So those were the starting lineups, next let's get to the match. Napoli didn't waste any time taking the lead only 4 minutes into the match, Romano crossed from the left wing towards the far post, Ciabattini came off his line but misjudged the height of the cross, leaving a wide open goal for Pesce to head into, that was his first career goal with the Primavera. Pesce returned the favor only 8 minutes later, the play started with Cataldi who fired a rocket from 30 yards out but his shot hit the upright. Pesce was first to the rebound and fought off two Salernitana defenders before laying the ball off to Romano. He calmly tucked his shot into the bottom corner to double the lead. So only 12 minutes into the match we were up 2-0 and our U17 striker already had a goal and an assist. The Azzurini came close to adding a third in the 19th minute. Cataldi was left completely unmarked in front of the goal. He got a decent head on the ball, beating Ciabattini, but not Vignes who cleared the ball off the line. Next, both sides exchanged efforts from a distance. First, Vergara tried, but his shot sailed well over the bar. For Salernitana, Vignes tried from distance twice, the first missing the target and the second stopped by Idasiak. Those were Salernitana's first attempts at goal in the match. A few minutes later, Pesce came close to scoring his second of the match. Potenza played a low cross from the right wing into the path of the young striker. Pesce put his shot on target and 9 times out of 10 that ball ends up in the back of the goal. However, on this occasion, Ciabattini managed to make the save with his right boot. Napoli got the final chance of the half in the 44th minute. Sami played Vergara through on the right side of the area. He made a beautiful move to get past Vignes before firing on target at the near post, but Ciabattini did well to keep the ball out. 
The second half started just as positively as the first. In the 56th minute, substitute Davide Acampa played a long through ball to Vergara, who carried into the area, turned Dimico and laid the ball off for D'Agostino, who was making the late run. He was fouled by Pierre Venanzi, and Napoli were awarded a penalty kick. Cataldi took the penalty, and even though Ciabattini guessed correctly, the shot was too well taken to stop. That made the score 3-0, and there was little action after that. In the 75th minute, Pasquale Maranzino made his first appearance for the Primavera, replacing Vergara. Maranzino didn't wait long to get into the action. Two minutes after coming off the bench, he won possession, and though he had Barba open, he elected to shoot, but Dimico blocked the shot. Acampa had the next chance in the 80th minute, but he was blocked by Ciabattini. Napoli came close again on the ensuing corner kick. Guarino got free in the area, but his header was blocked by Salernitana substitute Giovanni Palmieri in front of the goal. Napoli ran the exact same set piece on the next corner, and again Guarino won the header, but this time his shot finished well over the bar. Salernitana didn't get their first real chance of the match until the 83rd minute. Guzzo carried the ball into the area on the right side. He passed to Palmieri, who received the pass with his back to the goal, before laying off to Luca Del Iorio at the top of the box. He shot low and hard, but the shot bent just wide of the mark. Even with a three-goal lead, Napoli got the best chances at the end of the match, starting with yet another corner kick. Spedalietti played a deep in-swinging corner, which Virgilio did well to volley on target. Ciabattini made the save, and the rebound popped up for Guarino, who once again headed over the bar. Then in the 89th minute, Virgilio played a campa through on the left side of the area, but Ciabattini was quick off his line to make the save. Finally, in the 93rd minute, Spedalietti had the ball on target from the Napoli corner kick, and once again, Ciabattini kept it out. Despite the score, Ciabattini actually had an excellent match in goal. So despite having so many key players out, this was still a dominant performance against a very weak Salernitana side. Not only did we win the match, but the other results were favorable as well. On the Thursday prior to this match, Pescara walloped Cosenza 6-1. Cosenza needed to win all five of their remaining matches to guarantee that they surpass us, so that cannot happen, but they are still alive. If they win out and we lose our final match, they would finish one point clear of us. Spezia were shocked by Regina. Regina, who are second from bottom, won that match 2-1. That means Spezia are out of contention for the playoff spot. Frosinone had their match with Cosenza postponed, but with our win, they mathematically cannot catch us either. They needed us to drop at least 4 points from our final 2 matches to have a chance. Crotone lost 5-3 to 2nd to place Lecce, so they too are out of the race for the playoff spot, but Entella trounced Benevento 6-1 to, to remain tied with us on points, now at 35. That means the second playoff place will be decided on the final day of the season. We play against Spezia on Saturday. Spezia is a tough team, but they now have nothing left to play for, so hopefully that helps. Meanwhile, Entella plays Lernitana, who we just saw are pretty awful. We have to assume Entella wins that match, which means we absolutely must beat Spezia. What's interesting is that the Salernitana game is 4 hours prior to ours. They play at 11am local time or 5am eastern time, whereas we play at 3pm local time or 9am eastern time. That could potentially put some added pressure on us. Hopefully Salernitana pull off a miracle and then our game won't matter. If we win, we're in the playoff. With Pescara beating Pisa, we know that Lecce will be the other playoff team. Meanwhile, Parma and Cremonese are already confirmed to play in the playoff in Group A. 
Normally, the playoff is a much longer process involving clubs from 2nd to 7th in each group. However, because of COVID, the playoff was reduced to only 4 teams, with 2 from each group. 2nd place from Group A will play against 3rd place from Group B, and vice versa. That means if we beat Spezia, we would play against Parma in the semifinals of the playoff. The semifinals will be played on June 5th, and the finals will be on June 12th. So that will do for Part 2. In Part 3, we'll return to the men's game and talk about the coaching carousel in Serie A. In the final part, I'll cover the coaching carousel that is Serie A. There's been a ton of drama over the last week or so with respect to coaches, so I'll provide an update on that, and I'll do it within the context of Napoli since we've been linked to just about every coach available. For Napoli, the rumors started back in January or thereabouts. Prior to that, we were winning games and all was well. Gattuso and De Laurentiis had supposedly had lunch together and agreed on a renewal. It didn't sound like the financials were an issue, and I distinctly remember Gattuso saying at the time that if management lost trust in him, he would step down and not ask for a package, as he did at Milan. And yet, for whatever reason, the extension was not signed. The consensus in the media, at least, seemed to be that it was Gattuso that was holding out. Then we began to falter for various reasons, not the least of which was injuries that were mounting, starting with our record signing Victor Osiman. At the first sight of vulnerability, the Napolitan media pounced. Gattuso, who's normally very open with the media, continuously explained that it is difficult playing every three days, let alone with all the injuries. He repeated time and time again that this is not football that we're playing, it's something else. And though I agreed, a lot of people dismissed what he was saying. A lot of people called Gattuso's explanations excuses, often pointing to Milan, who had also endured numerous injuries, including to their star forward, but were still delivering results. It wasn't long before the rumors started spreading that Gattuso was at risk of being sacked. Those rumors really started to heat up after the loss to Juventus in the Supercopa. The club did eventually issue a statement declaring their full confidence in Gattuso, but the statement came nearly a week after the loss. Prior to that, there were various reports that De Laurentiis had started calling around to other managers. Now, we don't know whether that's true or not, but even if it is, as an owner, he has the right, if not the responsibility, to plan for the worst case scenario. Why it was also public is an altogether different story. The Friedkins proved with their signing of Jose Mourinho that owners can work in private if they so choose, so a part of me thinks that these stories are intentionally being leaked to the media. Whatever the case, Gattuso did not feel like he was supported by the club when he needed it the most, and it's quite possible that any future with Gattuso at Napoli 
ended then and there. In fact, leading up to the ending of the season, many reporters suggested Gattuso would not renew even if we qualified for the Champions League because the relationship had been damaged beyond repair. Not surprisingly, the managers that we were linked to at the time were those who were available to take over the club immediately, i.e. managers who were not currently employed. That included Maurizio Sarri, Rafa Benitez, Walter Mazzari, Luciano Spalletti, and Max Allegri. Allegri and Sarri were both still collecting paychecks from Juve at the time, Spalletti was still collecting a paycheck from Inter, Mazzari was collecting a paycheck from Torino, and Benitez had parted ways with Chinese Super League club Dalian Pro by mutual consent. Now, for me at least, three of those names were highly unlikely to sign. De Laurentiis almost never brings people back to the club, so I never bought the rumors of Sari, Benitez, or Mazzari. Allegri never really seemed like a real option to me either, largely because of the price tag, but as our performances improved and with them chances of qualifying for the Champions League, the Allegri rumors seemed to become more realistic. Then, when we failed to qualify for the Champions League, I immediately crossed his name off the list. There was no way he was going to coach for a team that was not in the Champions League. I thought Allegri would end up at Real Madrid or Juventus, and I was leaning more towards Real Madrid. It's been known for some time now that Zidane was going to move on this season. Real Madrid failed to win a trophy for the first time in 11 years. Zidane officially stepped down on Thursday, so I thought Zidane would go to Juventus given his connection to the club as a former player, and Allegri would go to Madrid. It turns out I was wrong. On Thursday, reports surfaced that Allegri would indeed replace Andrea Pirlo as the new manager of Juventus. That was confirmed by the club on Friday. Perhaps I was too naive or too hopeful to think that Allegri would join a club outside of Serie A. We know that Allegri has always had an excellent relationship with Andrea Agnelli. The two of them dine together regularly. Earlier in the week, Juventus announced that sporting director Fabio Paratici would not be renewed, which might have been an early indication of Allegri's impending contract. As I understand it, part of the reason Allegri left Juve initially was because Paratici was handed the reins, and as we've seen, Paratici has made a mess of it. Though Real Madrid are always a top club in Spain, they are very much in a rebuilding phase, and I wonder if that might have deterred Allegri as well. Now, Juve are also in a rebuilding phase as well, but you could argue that they're further along. They already have some excellent young players in Matthias Delict, Dan Kulusevski, and Federico Chiesa. They are also heavily linked to Gigio Donnarumma and Manuel Locatelli. That's already half of a world-class team right there, but there are plenty of decisions to be made. It seems inevitable that Cristiano Ronaldo will move on. Juve also need to make about 100 million euros in plus Valenza, so we'll see what that means for players like Paolo Dybala. Nonetheless, with the appointment of Allegri and the disaster at Inter, which I'll get to momentarily, Juve has quickly become the favorites to win Serie A next season. Back to Napoli, as an alternative to the seasoned veterans, we were also linked to three up-and-coming managers in Serie A. All three were already under contract, which meant they would not be available to join until the end of the season. The idea resonated with some Napoli fans, particularly those who recollected that Maurizio Sarri coached for Empoli, before taking the helm at Napoli and bringing us within touching distance of the Scudetto. Others saw these options as being inherently risky. These were relatively inexperienced managers who could possibly be the next Sari, but could equally be the next Marco Giampaolo. Giampaolo was excellent at Sampdoria before making the leap to Milan and completely flopping. One of those options was Hellas Verona coach Ivan Juric. Juric had an excellent 2019-20 campaign, leading newly promoted Hellas Verona to a top 10 finish. 
Then he carried that form into this season despite selling three key players in Sofyan Amrabat, Marash Kumbula, and Amir Rachmani, with the latter joining Napoli, of course. I personally wasn't too fond of the idea, primarily because Juric plays a 3-5-2, and I couldn't reconcile how he would squeeze Lorenzo Insigne, Victor Osman, and Chucky Lozano into that system. If Juric wasn't already unlikely to come, his recent post-match conference confirmed that there was no way he would join Napoli. Sky journalist Massimo Ugolini began by stating, A different Verona than the one we've seen the last few weeks, which is undeniably true, Verona had been dreadful in the entire second half of the season, but before Ugolini could finish his sentence, Juric interrupted, demanding respect and accusing Ugolini of not having watched Verona play. Ugolini tried again, saying we saw Verona with a different charge and again was interrupted by Juric, accusing Ugolini of being disrespectful and asking unfair questions and demanding an apology. Fabio Caressa tried to interject from the Sky Studio, but Juric walked away from the microphones. The club issued a statement after the match in support of their manager saying President Setti and Hellas Verona FC in order to protect the sporting values that have characterized the club on this occasion as well underlines the inappropriateness of the questions addressed directly to their coach in the post-match of Napoli Verona. Now none of this was caused by Napoli but I still think it makes it highly unlikely that Juric would join. The fan bases between the clubs have a pretty serious rivalry as well. Juric had been heavily linked to the Torino job, and that was confirmed on Friday. I think that's actually a good place for him. We'll see what ends up happening with Andrea Bellotti, but there is plenty of talent on that team. They should have never been caught in a relegation battle with the quality in that squad. Another name we were linked to was Sassuolo manager Roberto De Zerbi. That made sense for a couple of reasons. First, he plays a positive, attractive brand of football, much like we were accustomed to seeing under Sadi. He also employs a 4-2-3-1, the same system we used this season, meaning the squad would not have to be restructured to suit his tactics. The Zerbi confirmed recently that he would not renew with Sassuolo, citing that he doesn't think he could achieve anything more at the club. However, the Zerbi was rumored to be joining Shakhtar Donetsk, and on Tuesday, the Ukrainian club announced that the Zerbi had signed a two-year contract. Shakhtar finished second in the Ukrainian Premier League behind Dinamo Kiev, meaning Shakhtar will play in the Champions League qualification round, so the Derby is out of Serie A altogether. The third up-and-coming Serie A manager that we were linked to was Spezia's Vincenzo Italiano. He led the newly promoted club to survive in their first season in the top flight and picked up some really impressive results in the process, including wins over Napoli, Sassuolo and Milan, and draws to Inter and Roma. Italiano's dissertation talks about having 10 playmakers on the pitch, and the team's play demonstrated that. Spezia clearly had their own identity, they didn't simply drop back to defend like you see with most newly promoted clubs. Spezia play in a 4-3-3 which is of course a system that would work in Napoli with the current squad. However, like Juric and the Zerbi, Italiano fell off the radar a little bit in the second half of the season and now he has been rumored to fill the void left by the Zerbi at Sassuolo. That move would make a lot of sense to me, Sassuolo would be a step up for Italiano and Sassuolo already play attack-minded football so it wouldn't take much for those players to adapt to Italiano's style of play. Another Serie A manager we were linked to closer to the end of the season was Lazio Simone Inzaghi. That idea never made much sense to me and I told this to my good friend Jerry Mancini who's a huge Laziale a while ago. First of all, like Juric, Inzaghi plays a 3-5-2 which doesn't really work for our current squad makeup, but even if Inzaghi was flexible with his system, I couldn't see why he would leave a club like Lazio 
to join a club like Napoli. As far as rank in the table goes, the clubs are far too similar. Sure, we have a much deeper squad and an owner who's a bit more willing to spend, which both have been issues for Inzaghi at Lazio, but I always felt that if Inzaghi were to leave Lazio, it would be to join a big club in Serie A. It looks like that's exactly what will happen with Inzaghi now expected to join Inter. On Thursday, Inter confirmed that Antonio Conte would not be returning for the final season of his contract. The speculation is that Conte would only return if Inter did not sell off any key players. Despite Suning recently securing a 250 to 300 million euro loan, Inter still need to sell players to get their finances in order. In fact, Inter's financial situation is really dire. They seem to be heading down the same path with Oak Tree as Milan did with Yang Hong Lee and Elia Group's eventual takeover of the club, and you can see why these clubs were so eager to join the Super League. Inter will reportedly pay Conte 7.5 million euros to leave the club, and I've seen speculation that Conte's buyout was conditional on him not staying in Serie A, though I don't believe that has been confirmed by any credible sources. Conte has already been linked to some big jobs, including Tottenham and Real Madrid, who we talked about earlier. The same day that Conte stepped down, Inzaghi told Ansa that he would not be returning next season to Lazio. This came as a real shock to Laziali who were under the impression that Inzaghi was on the verge of a 3-year renewal at 2 to 2.5 million euros per season. That was supposedly the result of a 7-hour meeting between Inzaghi and Lazio owner Claudio Lotito, which culminated in a verbal agreement to renew. On Thursday, Lotito confirmed that they had reached an agreement and that Lotito had already signed the contract. He was just waiting for Inzaghi to sign, but apparently Inzaghi, who's been with Lazio for two decades, first as a player and then as a coach, changed his mind overnight. Shortly thereafter, Gianluca Di Marzio reported that Inzaghi was close to signing with Inter. That makes sense to me. Inter are already built to play a 3-5-2, and they are definitely a step up from Lazio. Also, Inzaghi is accustomed to getting by without significant investment, which is the situation he'll be walking into at Inter. I wonder if he knows exactly what he's getting into there, because this is going to be a complete teardown as far as I can tell. As far as the Inter rumors go, Inzaghi quickly replaced Porto manager Sergio Conceição, who was linked to Inter for about 24 hours. That's the second Italian club that Conceição was heavily linked to for 24 hours, the first being Napoli, of course. On Monday, Corriere dello Sport broke the story that Conceição had agreed to terms with Napoli. This was an intriguing report. Though he had not coached in Italy, Conceição knows Italy from his time there as a player with Parma, Lazio, and Inter. He also seemed to have the right characteristics for the job. Like Gattuso, he's a hard-nosed manager that's not afraid to kick players out of training, and by all accounts, he's also a better tactician. His commitment to a club and to a project has been compared to that of another Portuguese manager in Jose Mourinho. And he plays a 4-4-2 or a 4-3-3, which we are already structured to play. Then on Tuesday, the very same paper, Corriere reported that the distance had widened at the contractual level, which led De Laurentiis to pause for reflection. Apparently, a presentation in Rome had already been planned for Wednesday or Thursday. Now, like I said on our last episode of Forza Napoli Worldwide, I don't think the paper fabricated this story. These situations are very fluid, they're ever-evolving, and they can change rapidly as we saw with Inzaghi at Lazio. I'm sure there was some kernel of truth that led Corriere to publish that report. That said, De Laurentiis completely denied the report. He responded to Portuguese paper Mais Football, saying that he had never spoken to Conceição. He confirmed that he's spoken to Conceição's agent and close friend Jorge Mendes, who's proposed three or four coaches, but there were never any negotiations. 
De Laurentiis reiterated this point in an interview with RTP Sport, where he added that Napoli will hire an Italian and the club will decide in 20 days. I'm inclined to believe him at least as far as hiring an Italian goes, and if you agree, then that rules out another prospect in Christophe Galtier. Galtier has been linked to Napoli for some time now. He's fresh off his league on title with Lille, who despite winning the league, are a club in complete and utter disarray. They parted ways with their star sporting director Lucas Campos earlier this season, and every year they're forced to sell their top talent because of their dire financial situation. They've sold Thiago Mendes, Rafael Leao, Nicolas Pepe, Gabriel, and Victor Osimhen for hefty profits over the last two seasons alone. Pepe and Osimhen were both 70 million plus euro sales, and yet they still have financial issues. Most recently, they sold their league-winning goalkeeper Mike Magnon to Milan, who signed the French keeper as a replacement to the departing Gigio Donnarumma. Now they are likely to lose their coach as well. The previous reports were that Galtier was going to stay in France and join Nice. On Monday, he told French radio station RMC Sport that he had not made his decision yet and that he had multiple offers, including from Napoli. Then on Tuesday, he elaborated quite candidly in an interview with L'Equipe. He said he is interested in three clubs, Lyon, Nice, and Napoli. He said everything will be decided before the end of the week. He added that Napoli were interested in him, but also in other coaches, and he didn't know where he placed on the list. He also added that he understood Napoli were steps away from Concesao, which makes you wonder whether Corriere's report was true, or whether Galte was just seeing all the same hype around that story that we saw. So where does that leave us? As far as Italian coaches go, technically Sari, Spalletti, Mazzari, Inzaghi, and Italiano are all available. Like I said, I think Inzaghi will join Inter, and by the time you hear this, that might already be official. Mazzari has been linked to Lazio as a possible replacement for Inzaghi. I still believe Italiano will end up at Sassuolo, and if not, then he could as well go to Lazio, or he could stay at Spezia. With Andrea Pirlo getting the sack, he has also been linked to the Sassuolo job. We haven't heard Sadi's name for a good while, so all indications are that it will be Spalletti at Napoli. I'd be fine with that. When we had Vincenzo Bertillo on the podcast, he made a pretty strong case for Gattuso to stay and why we shouldn't hire Spalletti. Now, that was before we finished in 5th place and on the presumption that we would be in the Champions League. Then we had a Zuri fan fill on and he made a pretty strong case for why we should hire Spalletti. I don't know what the right answer is. There's risk involved with any appointment. What I will say is how Spalletti spends his personal time or the fact that lots of people have made memes about him are completely irrelevant. People seem to be using these to push their own preferences, as if someone who likes to feed ducks can't also be a good football manager. If he is appointed, I will judge him based on the play on the pitch and based on the results. I mentioned that I was inclined to believe De Laurentiis' claim that the new manager will be Italian. I'm less inclined to believe that it will take 20 days. In fact, I think he meant the decision will be made within 20 days. I think we'll get the confirmation very soon because managers are dropping like flies. Likewise, we need to sign a new coach ASAP so we can get going in the Mercato. We can't make any decisions on players like Fabian, Koulibaly, Insigne, and so on without having first hired the coach. I saw a report on Friday that Napoli had asked Inter to release Spalletti early because he would like to join the club before July 1st. Nico Skira is reporting that the deal is already done. He says the contract will be two years and Spalletti's coaching staff will be Domenchini, Baldini, Pane, Yaya, and perhaps also Pizzaro. He adds that Spalletti is working to complete his staff with a goalkeeper's coach and a match analyst. 
that sounds promising, but as we know, until we see something official from the club, or in our case from De Laurentiis, nothing is official. Very quickly, there are a few other positions available around the league. Claudio Ranieri has stepped down from his post at Sampdoria. Marco Giampaolo has been rumored to return. Roberto Diversa and Luca Gotti are options as well. Of course, if Gotti leaves, that would leave a void at Udinese. Likewise, with Juric going to Torino, that leaves a void at Hellas Verona. Diversa has been linked to that job as well. If Italiano leaves Spezia, that position would be vacant as well, though I haven't seen any rumors about who might succeed Italiano. Finally, the three promotion clubs are Empoli, Salernitana, and Venezia. Currently, Empoli are managed by Alessio Dionisi, Salernitana are managed by Fabrizio Castori, and Venezia are managed by Paolo Zanetti, so we'll see if they all retain their positions. So that's the latest on the coaching carousel in Serie A. There's plenty more drama to come, and like I said, for some of you, by the time you hear this, things may have already changed because that's how wild this week has been. So that will do for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and give us a 5-star rating on your favorite podcast platform. As always, if you need to get a hold of me, you can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fischetti5, or you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fortsanopoly Pod. I'm hoping to be back next week with a panel of guests to do a season review podcast, so stay tuned for that. But until then, I'm Joe Fischetti, Fortsanopoly Sempre. for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At ChumbaCasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.